Well, welcome again, church, to our Sunday night teaching time. We're uh, part eight into a series, Renewed in the Spirit of Your Mind, Knowing How the Life of God Gets Inside. So it's not an external ritualistic observance of some religious pattern, but God working in your heart, in the mind, renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's where the work starts. I want to look at a passage of scripture tonight, and I want to talk to you about about the things we feel. Remember I talked about ideas and images and images, the, the power they have to cater to our desires. The things we feel in the process of having our minds re- either renewed in the life and power of the Spirit or drawn away from God into the patterns and desires of this world. And there's a passage of Scripture I want to look at. You know the passage, but I want to ask you a question that probably you haven't thought of when you read it. The story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, 30 to 37. Get a Bible and let's study this together. Luke 10, starting at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so, likewise, a Levite, so two religious people, A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Some of the translations say he was moved with compassion. The things we feel, he was moved with compassion. 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's quite a bit of money, and and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It was like a blank check. Which of these three, now Jesus speaks and asks the question. This isn't parable now. This is Jesus after the parable. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the men to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, Jesus makes it clear the secret of the Samaritan's success in ministry. There was a reason he was successful when the priest and the Levite both failed. You notice those important words. They're in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. King James and some other translations, he was moved with compassion. So my point here is, the Samaritan did something, the good Samaritan, when the priest and the Levite didn't, because this Samaritan felt something. He was moved with compassion. And and what he felt compelled him to act. And that's why, to this day, the worldwide term for this man was the 
good Samaritan. Moved with compassion. Maybe that says it best. His, his feelings, what he felt, that was the driving force that led him to be so good to this broken, beaten man by the roadside. But his actions, the good Samaritan, this goodness didn't come from nowhere. It came from something he felt. It wasn't cold, scripted righteousness. Everything was set in motion because inside, this Samaritan felt something. And what he felt was compassion. Now, I said I wanted to ask a question. Was the Samaritan the only one who was feeling something as he came to that wounded, broken, needy traveler? I mean, I know Jesus says that the good Samaritan was moved with compassion, but I want, I want to just put it out there. Think about this. I think all three, all three of those people who were going down the road, they all felt something. And I would argue they all acted in accordance to something they felt inside. Think about this. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, perhaps those two religious leaders were feeling anxiety because they were already late for something they had to do. Maybe because the Jews had no dealings with with, uh, Samaritans, but maybe, maybe just the fact that this guy by the road was broken and beaten, maybe, maybe the priest and the Levite were a felt, they felt fear that if they stopped, maybe the same thing would happen to them. Maybe they felt this guy by the road had done something to deserve his fate. My point is that I think probably all three acted in accordance with something they felt inside. All three of them acted with, in the direction of their feelings, their desires at that moment. So whatever the priest and the Levite felt, they felt something that moved them more than the sight of this wretched victim, whether it was fear or anxiety or disdain, whatever it was, they felt something and they acted in accordance with those feelings. Here's what I'm saying. All things being equal, what we feel inwardly, I'm thinking about our desires, but, but desires, desires aren't things we process mentally. Desires are things that we feel. That's why I, desire, feeling, I'm, I'm using them as synonyms. But these desires that we have, they have perhaps the greatest potential to shape the rest of our beings. Keep your heart with all diligence. Remember Proverbs 4.23, for from it flow the springs of life. And so what we've been looking at for the last few Sunday nights, the way the mind works with two things. It works with ideas and it works with images. Ideas, they're shaped They're shaped by our culture. They're shaped by our peers. They're shaped by the environment. They're formed over time. We don't always even process the ideas, the values, the worldview that drives our life. Images, though, they come to the mind with 
great impact, they bypass logical processes and reasonings. They just, they just hit our feelings. They hit our desires and draw us in. Images don't ask you true or false. You don't actually agree or disagree with an image. You can like it or not like it, but it's not a mental process. That explains, by the way, why intelligent people can do such silly and sometimes even wicked things. Think about it this way. A married man doesn't carry on with an affair because he thinks it's intelligent. I mean, there's nothing in the affair that makes sense. He risks throwing away a lot. Even if he's not a Christian, forget that for a minute. I'm talking about any kind of an affair. He risks throwing away a great deal. No, he doesn't get into an affair because it's logical or it's intelligent. It's not worked out on a mental level. In fact, and this is really important, if he's going to successfully carry on an affair, what he has to do is he has to shut down the reasoning process. He's going to have to avoid carefully thinking the whole thing through. He's operating on a different level. He's operating on the level of desire, not thought, feelings, not logic. My point is these feelings, take that idea. Think of the good Samaritan moved with compassion. That's why he was good. Or think of the immoral husband who is moved with his feelings toward evil and sin and wickedness. And I hope you can see that in both directions, what we feel in our hearts has incredible potential for righteousness or for wickedness. Now, after that long introduction, point number one. The essence of our fallen state in this world, the essence of our fallen state in this world is confusing feelings, desires with reality. And I just want to say up front, I think this is one of the most important lessons a disciple of Christ can ever learn right there. Look at James Chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And by the way, tonight's message, tonight's teaching might be a, a teeny bit longer. I tried to work so much into it. It might be about 10 minutes longer. So uh, grab another sandwich or something like that. James 4, 1 to 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. Is it not this? that your passions, feelings, desires, that your passions are at war within you. You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's the desire thing. You adulterous people. Remember the wicked husband? Same principle. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there's a lot there, but just this. Take careful note of James, his key thought here. He, he's, he's telling us what friendship with the world is, okay? Worldliness. We don't use the word much anymore. What friendship with the world is. Friendship with the world is identified chiefly by the extent to which the actions of my life are generated by my desires rather than God's will. That's worldliness. Don't make the mistake of thinking James is only talking to really messed up, twisted people. He's writing to church people. These people are so motivated, dominated by their own passions, their feelings, their desires, that they would literally rather fight than change their ways. Why? Well, they have become convinced. They've become convinced that any course of action is justified in satisfying their passions, their desires. And, and here's what all of this means for their Christian life and ours. James says that even these religious actions, the religious actions of these people, their prayers, they, they don't count anymore. Their prayers are useless. By committing to their own passions, their own desires, they are lining themselves up with the world and against God. James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. Now, Why are they doing this? Why would any person want to make themselves an enemy of God? Well, remember what we said earlier. This isn't a rational process. This isn't logical. It's not reasoned out. They aren't operating on that level. Their their desires, their passions have created the illusion of reality. They think their passions are what shape their life. They honestly believe They have to respond the way they are responding to their inner desires. And and, and notice something else important here. There's a danger James is warning about that that we are all, all of us, capable of falling into. and, And here it is. These people are mistaking their desires for their wills. This is how people line themselves up with the world, with the devil, and inevitable ruin. This is worldliness. Worldliness isn't just a matter of possessions or fashion or entertainment. Certainly those things can shape and carry us along. But worldliness is the condition of mind where personal desires become reasons for doing things. Repeat that in your mind. Worldliness is where personal feelings become reasons for doing things. It's the logic behind all same-sex marriage arguments. It's the logic behind all transgender arguments. Your desires become your identity. Temptations 
define who you are. That's the condition James is describing. Principle, reason, self-discipline, goodness, divine revelation, all take a back seat to the power of being moved by desire. Okay, point number two. Here's the problem. Feelings and desires, when repeatedly catered to, create strongholds. The scriptures yield another powerful lesson. There's a deceptiveness here. While living by desire and feeling and passion, it it seems initially to be the easiest, most satisfying way to live. It's actually the most difficult, demanding, bondage-producing way to live. It's the illusion of freedom, but the end is bondage. Paul talks about this. The Bible is a deep book on this subject. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 20. Now I say, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, now I say and testify in the Lord that you, Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles, the pagans do. Don't don't do that anymore, Paul says. What's wrong with the way the pagans walk? In the futility of their minds. Look at this, 18. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, here's the, here's the verse I want you to notice, 19. They have, they have become, didn't happen instantly, there was a process here. They have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality. Don't just think of sexuality, sensuality, living by the senses, the desires, the immediate. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So if a godly walk is the opposite of the Gentile, the pagan walk, we we need to determine exactly what characterizes, in Paul's thinking, what characterizes the ungodly. And he says, Paul says several things. A, in the ungodly walk, the mind has become futile. That's in 18, darkened in their understanding. The futility of their minds, 17. So so in these people who live by their passions, they live by their desires because it seems like that would be the most fruitful, satisfying way. Paul says, here's the first thing that happens their minds don't function the way God made their minds to function. It's not an IQ issue. It's not that they're not bright. They can be brilliant people. But in terms of godliness, in terms of their created purpose, their mind doesn't function the way it's supposed to function. Their mind doesn't function spiritually, and their mind won't function morally as a reliable reference center anymore. Desires drive, not reason. B, here's another trait. 
the ungodly walk according to the desires of the senses. That's in verse 19. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's a sentence. Notice they've given themselves up to the desires of the senses. So so these are not just people who feel. We all feel things. These are people who have turned the reins of their lives over to their desires, their passions, their feelings. They've grown accustomed to seeing their desires as their identity. C, another trait. The ungodly become enslaved by the feelings that once looked like they would give the greatest pleasure and freedom. It's in 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this is the main point that I mentioned initially. Desires repeatedly catered to create strongholds. Notice how Paul says these people in verse 19, they've become callous. You ever, you ever get a working and over and over, you get a callous on your hand somewhere? There's no feeling in a callous. In fact, some of the translations even use the words past feeling instead of just callous. And what Paul wants us, all of us, to see is the tragic irony in this situation. The very people who made their feelings their God because it looked like there was the most promise there they end up being callous and past feeling. They can't feel anymore. They catered to their feelings and in the end lost the ability to feel. Live by your feelings and you end up losing the capacity of truly feeling anything genuine and joy-producing. Then Paul says, he says in verse 19, these people are greedy to practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, why? Look at these people. It's not working. Why do they keep doing this? Well, they, they, they keep doing it because they have to keep doing it. That's what a stronghold is. They are long dead in the feeling department. They become callous. They become past feeling. And yet they keep going. Why? Well, because when you make your feelings and your desires your identity and your God, you don't get to decide when the ride is over. Feelings, desires, when they're treated as identity, when they're catered to, they produce strongholds. It's easy to get in. It's almost impossible to get out. Here's what's happening. Gradually, without ever processing it, an ungodly worldview is forming. And the governing idea, never written, never spoken out loud, a governing idea is steering the life. Images make the appeal to the desires. The desires repeatedly given into create the situation where personal happiness is impossible. 
This is why, maybe you've noticed it, it's so hard to reason with people who are destroying themselves with deceitful desires to their own ruin. Everybody else sees it. You try and talk, they, they can't see it. They can't see it. So, so by virtue of governing their lives by their own feelings and temptations and desires, they've become futile in their thinking, Ephesians 4, 17. The mind gets hijacked by the desires. Point number three. Now we're in a position to understand some key phrases in the Bible. If you don't understand what we've been talking about, some of these phrases are just Christianese. They don't don't have the meaning they should have. So point number three, dying to self. Take up your cross, die to self. Crucify the self. We all know that that lingo. Dying to self in the scriptures is directed primarily toward the passions, the feelings, the desires of the heart. Somehow, this whole concept of dying to self, it has to be put into a a meaningful concept so it carries the power it's supposed to carry. And I think right now, In this teaching, we're at the place where this idea of dying to self can be seen in clearer light. Look at Luke 9, 23 and 24. Jesus is the speaker. And he said to everyone, if anyone would come after me, here we go. Let him deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow me. 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. There's a way of living that looks like it's going to be satisfying, and it has to do with, this This is what I want. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Or look at Galatians 5.24, just two texts. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. What's that mean? He tells us, with its passions and desires. I can't tell you how many Christians equate this scriptural injunction to die to self. They equate that with a life that's just minus all joy, all delight, all pleasure. In other words, they picture the command to die to self. They they equate that with a life that is void of fulfillment. But in fact, as as you can see from the previous point, the exact opposite is the case. A, A life lived under the dictatorship of desires, passions, feelings, that's the life that becomes, Paul says, calloused and past feeling. It just dries up. Whereas the life lived under the lordship of Jesus rather than the lordship of passions and desires, that results, Jesus said, that's how you find life. But this discovery of the freedom and joy of dying to selfish desires and passions, it it comes in stages. And I think that's the important part. At first, in the beginning of This process of dying to your own passions and desires, you have to make very 
conscious steps, sometimes painful steps. That's because from where we start on our journey toward having minds renewed by the Spirit, a big chunk of our being, it it, it still lives for self, and it's kind of like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. So in other words, as we start following the Lord, many of our habits are still wrongly poised in the direction of our own desires, our own passions. That's kind of the default position where we all start. So especially in the early stages of being renewed in the spirit of our minds, we have to frequently and at times painfully uh, reject the preeminence of, ooh, this is what I want. So thus, in the early part of our quest for spiritual mindedness, we'll we'll kind of find ourselves focusing on not wanting to do what we might naturally want to do and choosing to do something that we don't naturally want yet. It's like the Romans 7, 15 and 19. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 19. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, it's what I keep doing. I mean, that's where we start. All the components of our beings aren't instantly transformed, and they're not all transformed at the same pace, so don't be judging others. That's okay. That's how all transformation begins. And a lot of people miss out on the joy of finding their life in God's will because they don't like the initial pain of denying their own passions and desires. Point number four. We can only change our desires indirectly, not directly. The very best that a strong-willed person can do is just deny his feelings. We've all seen people do this, at least occasionally, but... But it's even if it's a good first step, it's not the Christian goal. Our goal is not merely to deny the feelings of our hearts and lives. I mean, feelings count. We're not robots. We're not meant to be. The goal of the Christian life is by the Spirit of God, not only to deny feelings, but to replace them with godly passions. Like the good Samaritan, we want to be moved desiring, but in a good direction. This is what the Bible means when it says something like, the the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's moved to delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. See, but somehow a habit was formed until it created a new passion, a new desire. How does that happen? We're almost done. I don't think you can change your feelings just by a frontal attack. I mean, true enough, wrong desires, they have to be strenuously denied, especially at first. 
But this will not in itself replace wrong desires with right desires. Feelings have to be changed at another level. And here's the key. Passions, desires, feelings, whatever word you want to use, they can only be changed through the renewing of the mind. And you renew your mind indirectly by what you give your mind to. What you give your attention to, you will come to love. What you love will shape your life. Remember that. What you give your attention to, good or bad, you will come to love. What you love will shape your life. So John says, 1 John 2.15, or John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Though many Christians are slow to see it, this is the very first step in changing the desires of the heart. It's very hard at first, but the process gains, it gains momentum as you continue in it. You, you begin to change the desires and passions and feelings of the heart as you change what you put into your mind. You starve bad affections and you feed right affections. At first, at first, the whole process starts to feel like sheer willpower. It's a lot of uphill work. It takes a great deal of prayer. It takes fellowship in the church and time in the word. The, the, the freedom comes later. What you love, what you give your attention to, it will shape your life. Crucify the flesh. Diet your mind around the word and prayer. Sooner or later, sooner than you think, you'll find yourself delighting in the law of the Lord. That was a lot. Uh, watch it again. Don't forget Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, 7 o'clock, meeting live again in the sanctuary. Going to be... Uh, Continuing in the series, what comes to your mind when you think about God? Right here, Wednesday, 7 o'clock, in person. There's children's ministries at the same time. God bless you, church. Love one another.